Well, good morning. As you can see, I've muddled up for this uh, beautiful November morning, nice and crisp outside. For those of you that don't know me, my name is Evange Destunas. I'm part of the preaching and teaching team here at Westview. Welcome to those of you that are here. Uh, for those of you that are on live stream or who will be watching later on, a special good morning from our perspective. Uh, thank you for being here with us. We pray and that uh, the Lord would bless us this morning with what he has in store. Uh, we're going to be getting back into the Gospel of John this morning uh, after a brief uh, hiatus with uh, Charlie's message on spiritual gifts from 1 Corinthians 12 to 14 last week. We'll be focusing on John 17. We know that for the last few weeks we've been in the, um, the what's called the, um, I'm drawing a blank here, the, no, what is it, John 14 to 17? The farewell discourse. Yes, good. That's not in my notes, so I, no excuse. <laughs> but before we get into the passage in John 17, um, I want to talk about Steve Jobs and the iPhone. But first, before I head into that, question for you all. Which adult here has or currently owns a smartphone? I think the easier question is who doesn't, right? I mean... Everybody practically has a smartphone in today's day and age. So I want to take us back to January 9th, 2007. Steve Jobs was the CEO of Apple, and he stood up, cast a vision, and introduced the iPhone 1. Actually, it was not called the iPhone 1 because it was the first one. It was just called the iPhone. He literally said in his uh, talk that morning that the iPhone is a revolutionary and magical product that is literally five years ahead of any other mobile phone. That's vision. That's casting something big. And we know that from that point onwards, it has totally changed the way we live our lives, right? How we do life and how those things in our pockets are constantly attached to us with an umbilical cord. Now, whether it's a CEO of a multinational corporation or a political leader, a religious leader, a monarch, the bigger the vision, the more inspiring and compelling it is, right? And what we're going to do today is we're going to see the vision that Jesus cast in this prayer that he prayed. What was Jesus's vision? Now, before we get into the passage, it is important to note that when Jesus cast this vision, when he prayed to his heavenly father what he prayed, he was literally hours removed from being betrayed and eventually crucified. If you knew that you had hours to live, what would your prayer be like? That kind of has a way of weeding out all the superficial, unimportant stuff, right? It really cuts to the chase. This is what matters. Priority number one, this is what I would like to pray for. And I think it, it bears taking note of that, knowing that Jesus prayed, knowing what loomed ahead for him, right? So let's get into this prayer. We're going to be looking at the last seven verses, John chapter 17. I invite you to turn to your Bibles or any 
smartphones or devices that you have with you to John chapter 17. We'll be looking at verses 20 to 26. We did a bit of a, an exchange with Basil. He'll be preaching next week on the first 19 verses. Uh, and today we're going to be focusing on the last seven verses, 20 to 26. Now, we're kind of picking it up in the middle. I'm not going to go over the first 19 verses. I'm not going to steal Basil's thunder. I'll let him preach on that. Suffice it to say that the first part of this high priestly prayer of Jesus is praying about his disciples, his followers, those people that were with him. And in verse 20, he turns the corner. And listen to what he says. My prayer is not for them alone, them being his disciples, his followers, okay? My prayer is not for them alone. I pray also for those who will believe in me through their message. That all of them may be one, Father, just as you are in me and I am in you. Now, first thing that we take note of is that he's praying for those who will believe future in me through the message of his disciples. So he's spanning the globe, right? He's going outwards to, from Jerusalem to Judea, Samaria, to the ends of the earth. And he's going down through the corridor of time, century after century after century, all the way into our present day and beyond. That's a pretty big vision, right? He's praying for everyone. He's praying for the human race. All of those who will believe in me through their message. He's inviting everyone to hear the message, the testimony, the word of his disciples. And he's praying for those individuals who will hear that message. And what is he praying for? That all of them may be one father. And how united ought they to be? Just as you are in me and I am in you. May they also be in us so that the world may believe that you have sent me. So one thing we get from the first part of this passage is that whatever Jesus is praying for, he's praying that it would be observable, noticeable, that significant, that apparent, that the world that the world may believe that you have sent me. I have given them the glory that you gave me, that they may be one as we are one. The glory that he's talking about is speaking to the progressive revelation of the person and character of God as seen in Jesus. He says, I in them and you and me, so that they may be brought into complete unity. Then the world will know that you sent me and have loved them even as you have loved me. So in the prayer, Jesus is praying for these disciples and also for those eventual followers that will come to him. And he's praying that not only that we would be united, but that the world will know that Jesus is not just any common human being, but he has been the Son of God sent from God the Father. And not only that, that the love that his followers, we his followers have, has been received from him, even and have loved them even as you have loved me. The very love that the Father has for the Son is the same love and to the same extent and degree that he has for us. 
Verse 24, Father, I want those you have given me to be with me where I am and to see my glory, that full revelation of who God is, the glory you have given me because you loved me before the creation of the world. So he wants them, he wants all his followers and eventual followers to see Jesus in all his glory, in all his fullness of God. Then he turns the corner in verse 25, righteous father. Earlier on in the passage, he says, holy father. Here he says, righteous father. Why? Because he is the judge of the living and the dead. And he says, though the world does not know you, I know you. And they, these children, know that you have sent me. I have made you known to them and will continue to make you known. Why? in order that the love you have for me may be in them and that I myself may be in them. So if we were to whittle down this prayer that Jesus has for the eventual followers, it is basically talking about unity flowing out of love. Unity flowing out of love. Now, on the surface, in light of the challenges that we are faced with in the church and outside of the church, if we are to bring this to bear in our present day context, on the surface, it sounds kind of lame, right? How is this vision going to speak at all the turmoil that's going around our globe? There's the war in Ukraine. We're just trying to inch ourselves out of a pandemic. All the mental health issues that our world, our society is being faced with, the political unrest, political authoritarian leaders flexing their muscles on people, climate change, world hunger, shortage of water. The list could go on and on and on and on. How can this vision of Jesus speak into these challenges that we are faced with in the world? Another reality, if we're to contextualize ourselves with this vision, is the reality that the church here in the West is shrinking. Not only are people in the culture not interested in the church, have no desire to engage with the church, but people are leaving the church in droves, never desiring to come back. That's the reality here in the West. So how can this vision of Jesus speak into that? How can his vision be used to re-spark the life back into the church? What is our mission statement here at Westview? Our mission statement is to be a community pursuing the restoration of all people and all things through a living relationship with Jesus Christ. Does that mission statement tie in with the vision, with the prayer of Jesus? Let us see. What about the New Testament? Is this vision, is this, this prayer that Jesus prayed central to the core message of the New Testament? I'll just give you a sampling of some of the uh, verses that were penned by uh, the Apostle Paul and uh, John, and even words that Jesus said. Listen to, these, listen to these words. Jesus, a new command I give you, love one another as I have loved you, so you must love one another. By this, everyone will know that you are my disciples if you love one another. Matthew twenty-two thirty-four. 34. 
Hearing that Jesus had silenced the Sadducees, the Pharisees got together. One of them, an expert in the law, tested him with this question. Teacher, which is the greatest commandment in the law? Jesus replied, love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind. This is the first and greatest commandment. And the second is like it, love your neighbor as yourself. And then he goes on to say, all the law and the prophets hang on these two commandments. Galatians 5, Paul, for the entire law is fulfilled in keeping this one command, love your neighbor as yourself. Romans 13, 8, let no debt remain outstanding except the continuing debt to love one another. For whoever loves others has fulfilled the law. The commandments, don't commit adultery, don't murder, don't steal, don't covet, and whatever other command there may be are summed up in this one command, love your neighbor as yourself. Love does no harm to a neighbor, therefore love is the fulfillment of the law. 1 Timothy 1.5, the goal of this command is love, which comes from a pure heart and a good conscience and a sincere faith. Galatians 5.6, for in Christ Jesus, neither circumcision nor uncircumcision has any value. The only thing that counts is faith expressing itself through love. John in 1 John 3.14, we know that we've passed from death to life because we have love for each other. Anyone who does not love remains in death. Ephesians 3.19, and to know this love that surpasses knowledge, that you may be filled to the measure of all the fullness of God. And John in 1 John 4.8, whoever does not love does not know God because God is love. Ouch. That one could sting. Whoever does not love does not know God because God is love. So we see that love is central to the message of the gospel. So why is it that so many people are leaving the church? And most significantly, Gen Z's and millennials. I want to address this in light of the prayer that Jesus prayed. Jacob Murray is um, uh, a Gen Z student in Wheaton College, and he wrote an article for the Gospel Coalition uh, about a year ago. And in it, he titled it, Five Things That Frustrate Gen Z Christians. Tell me this doesn't, this doesn't uh, resonate with you. Now, a lot of this speaks about the church south of the border, but I think in many ways, we can relate even even here in Canada and, in, and Quebec. The five things that frustrate Gen Z Christians. When partisan politics reshape our faith. Two, when apologetics outweighs relationships. When apologetics are weaponized against people outside of the church. Three, when Christians don't live what they believe. Amongst Gen Z and millennials, there's a, there's a real acute filter for hypocrisy. They're acutely aware of that. Four, when Christians are known more for judgment than love. Now, he goes on to say, yes, the gospel is offensive. The gospel is offensive. But there is a way of communicating it, of articulating it, of embodying it, that doesn't come off as judgmentalism. 
And finally, five, when Christians are not serious thinkers. He goes on to say specifically, at a time when critical thinking is on the decline and intellectually lazy behavior is on the rise, Christians sadly have a reputation for being among the worst offenders. Now, is Gen Z alone in this regard? What about the rest of the culture? How does the rest of the culture view the church? Evidence suggests, unfortunately, that Christians are not known today by their love. There was a, a recent uh, study by the Barna Research Group in uh, 2019. And in their findings, it said that almost half of the non-Christians interviewed, non-Christians interviewed, had a somewhat negative or very negative view, opinion of evangelical Christians. The words most often associated with evangelicals by non-Christians were religiously and politically conservative, narrow-minded, homophobic, misogynistic, puritanical, uptight, racist. And, the, and the, the research uh, study goes on to show that love did not even make the top 10. So along comes Jesus and says that the one mark, there's one mark that's going to define you as mine. There's one. It's not complicated. It's a one-syllable word. Love. Didn't make it to the top 10. Now, I'm not, I'm not here to... to diss our church and shame our church. I'm just saying what the perception is of the culture around us. Because I find in, in Quebec even, it's, it's not that different. People are completely clued out about the church, have no interest or desire to engage with the church. I think if we're going to talk about love, there is a sense of, of, of confusion about love. And I think we need to define or, or unpack what we mean when we say love. Because very often, love is reserved for the realms of the sent sentimental or the romantic when it comes to dating or marriage and that not. And, and, and it, it's almost a sense that we need something more than love to accomplish good things in the world, to grow in our faith, to lead others well. We need something more than love. Love is seen as something like anemic. To get the job done, you need something together with love. You need power, you need knowledge, you need something more. I submit to you, and I hope by the end of this message that we will all come to the realization that love is the most powerful force in the universe. I'll say it again. Love is the most powerful force in the universe. Love needs to be the goal of our faith. The aim that we are aiming for is love. Sure, there's other pursuits. We need to disciple. We need to share the gospel. We need to uh, uh, change our behavior, our conduct, to become more morally upstanding. All these are, are, are good and desirous pursuits. But at the center of it all, it needs to be love. I'm going to share something that profoundly impacted me by um, Matt Tebbe. Um, he's a co-author with Ben Sturge, this book called uh, A Faith to Live By. This, listen to what he wrote. 
The New Testament affirms over and over that our life in Christ is all about love, and love is all about being relationally and organically connected to God and others in mutual self-giving and holistic flourishing. Love is not merely nice actions we do for God and each other, nor is it merely warm feelings we feel toward God and each other. Love is deep, deep communion with God and each other. The love Jesus commands us to have for each other is the same love that the Father has for the Son, which is the love that we abide in as Jesus abides in us. The love is more than just something we see in Jesus and try to imitate in our own strength. This is agape love. This is agape from above, heavenly love. It's not something we can muster if we really try hard enough. It's a deep sharing in the life of God whose name is love. God is love. And incidentally in that phrase, love does not define God. God defines love. Listen to this. In other words, love is communion, which is the sharing of presence and fullness of life, the commingling of souls. I'll say that again. It's, I find this profound. In other words, love is communion, which is the sharing of presence and fullness of life, the commingling of souls. Much like a plant thrives physically through its participation in the life of the soil and the energy of the sun, we thrive spiritually through our participation in the very life of God shared with us through the incarnation of the sun and the pouring out of the spirit. This is what it means to become participants of the divine nature, 2 Peter 1.4. And it's what the Greek Orthodox Church calls theosis, union with God brought about by cooperation of human activity and God's uncreated energies. That is love. It's not just feelings. It's not just actions, although that includes it but it's the commingling of souls. It's sharing in the very life of God. It's not something that we achieve or work for. It's something that we enter into, something that we come to the realization of, that we consent to, that we are awakened to the reality of, and we learn to trust it. And Jesus is the embodied fulfillment of this communion in love, of the union between God and humanity. And this is the love, this communion in love that he invites us to and he prays over for us. Even salvation needs to be reappreciated with love in mind, with love as the pursuit. In many ways, we have this faulty or incomplete view of salvation. Very often, salvation is seen as a transaction between us and God where we do certain bad actions and God needs to punish us for those wrong actions, which includes death and separation from God. But then Jesus comes and he pays the penalty on our behalf and we get this free ticket to heaven when we believe in Jesus. Now this is, this is correct, but I submit to you it is incomplete. 
Because in a transactional relationship like that, there really is no need for relationship or interaction between the two parties once the transaction is complete. Basically, what happens is God gives us this thing, forgiveness of sins, which we accept and we receive this ticket to heaven when we die. And then there's no need to interact with God anymore. Sin, however, is our estrangement from God. Sin is where we turn away from God's presence, when we distance ourselves from the very life of God and desire to go our own way. It's, it's not something that is imposed upon us. I like the words of C.S. Lewis where he says, the door to hell is locked from the inside. It's something we want nothing to do with God. And hell is the place where God is not. That is what is happening here. Now, salvation, therefore, is the restoration of this communion in love. The joining of God and humans together. If sin is idolatry that leads to isolation from God, from each other, from creation, then salvation is the restoration of that, the bringing back together of that. And you see how our mission statement ties in with this reality, with this prayer of Jesus. Now, where did we go wrong with this? How come we came up with this incomplete view of God? Well, for many people, unfortunately, we have the Bible that starts with Genesis and ends with Revelation. But for many, the first two chapters of Genesis are clipped off, and the last two chapters of Revelation are clipped off. So we started, rather than from Genesis 1, we start with Genesis 3, and rather than ending in Revelation 22, we end with Revelation 20. And what is that story? It starts with a broken, fallen world, creation in Genesis 3, and it ends with the lake of fire in Revelation 20. But that's not God's full story. That's not the full narrative. It starts with Genesis 1, when this beautiful creation is made, where God is intimate and in relationship with humans. It says God walked with Adam and Eve in the cool of the day. They enjoyed intimate relationship, this communion in love before humanity decided to go its own way. And when we come to Revelation 20 and the great white throne judgment, yes, those who did not believe in Jesus are cast into the lake of fire. But then it goes on to say in Revelation 21 and 22 that the new Jerusalem de descended out of heaven. And God will be with us, will continue to be with us, and we will partake and enjoy this communion in love, this intimate relationship with God. If we say that God is love, we know that by definition, love, le love needs an object, an object to love. So before the creation of the world, what was there or who was there for God to love? Could it have been that there was a certain point in history where God was not loved because there was no object to love? 
And here is where the Trinitarian view of the Godhead comes into play, where we know before the foundation of the world, before creation was ever created, God existed, the triune God existed, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And they enjoyed this communion in love with each other, with one another. The Greek term is called perichoresis, and it pictures, it's almost like a circle dance that they danced, where they're holding hands, facing each other, and enjoying one another, blessing and loving one another in, in this communion, this intimate relationship. So the creation of the created order is nothing less than God, the triune God, inviting us to the dance. It's God welcoming us to join hands with Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, so to speak, that we will partake of that life and experience the fullness of that love in intimate relationship, intimate communion with the Godhead. The fallenness of humanity is the breaking of that clasped hand that Jesus extended to us. And the restoration is us rejoining and allowing this experience of life in all its fullness forever and ever and ever. What a vision. What a vision Jesus has. Amen? And yet, my heart still breaks for particularly the Gen Zs and the Millennials. And why is that? short history lesson. It's because Claire, my wife, and I were of Gen Z age when we came to Christ, or more appropriately, when our eyes were opened to the Christ that was relentlessly pursuing us, because we had no interest in Christ. We had no interest in Jesus. We were at that point, dating, and we had, uh, you know, I had a, a great career ahead of me. There was really no need for God. And yet, I have shared this story before. I'll very briefly say it again. It was in, in, my, in my final year of dental school that one of my classmates, whom we knew from back in the day from Vanier College, was challenged by his pastor in his church to jot down 10 names of people that he could reach out to to share the gospel and to potentially disciple. And number nine and number 10 on his list were Claire and myself. And he reluctantly put those two names down because he felt that this is just a shot in the dark. This is a lottery ticket. Those two have no interest in spiritual things, no interest in God, no interest in Jesus. But he put them down and he prayed and he reached out to us. Who knows if I would be standing here before you today if it was not for that faithful brother in Christ who took God up on the, on the challenge and God used through the power of the Holy Spirit in him to reach out to myself and to Claire. And not only did he bring us into the fold. Not only did he bring us into this communion and love, but he gifted us. He gifted me with this gift to share and articulate the gospel and the message that challenges me and challenges you and inspires us to walk faithfully this walk that God has laid before us. 
And Charlie's going to be speaking about spiritual gifts, as he said, next year. We're going to be looking into that. But at the end of the day, what is the use of our spiritual gifts than to point the finger to Jesus? And that is why my heart aches for the Gen Zs and the millennials. Yes, maybe they have rightfully been disillusioned and hurt by the church, not by Jesus, but by the church. But in many ways, the church, the bride of Christ, is, is the hands and the feet of Jesus in our world today, right? And I stand before you today on behalf of the church, extending the hand to all people who have been hurt, particularly the Gen Zs and the Millennials, and saying, I am sorry on behalf of the church. I apologize on behalf of the church. Don't give up on Jesus. Our aim here as a leadership and as a church is to allow Jesus to work so powerfully in us that it would be evident that we truly love one another with the love from heaven above. So much so that it spills out into a love for those around us who are far from us, who are, dare I say, even unlovable. That is the challenge that Jesus lays before us. And you know what? I can't do it. You can't do it. It takes this agape love from above to be accomplished. And when it happens, it is something beautiful to behold. And we know to the core of our being, it's not us, right? It's not me. It's not you. It's the love of God poured forth through the Holy Spirit that has been given to us, that we allow to gush out and impact others for his glory. Amen? The truth is, looking around here, I see a lot of precious, good people with hearts that beat after God. And I pray that we would take to heart this prayer that Jesus prayed for you, for me, for us, and truly become a community pursuing the restoration of all people and all things through a living relationship with Jesus Christ. Amen? I end with this story by John Fisher. I find his words really resonate with me because he's talking about the, the Jesus movement that took place in the 70s. And I, incidentally, I am a product of that Jesus movement. I was discipled by a former hippie Jesus follower. This is what he says. The Jesus movement was countercultural, not because of any new move on Jesus' part, but because he has always been countercultural. He has always flown in the face of the status quo. He rarely taught from inside the temple, the religious establishment. He taught on the road as he walked and talked with the disciples, in the boat as they crossed the lake, on a hillside overlooking the sea so a large crowd could hear him. He was always out and rarely in. He wanted to be where the people were. And nothing Jesus said fit with what people were expecting to hear from someone who claimed to be their Messiah. What do we do with him? That's exactly what the religious leaders of his day were struggling with. That's why they finally killed him. 
They didn't know what to do with him. He spoke with such authority among the ordinary that they had only two choices, to follow him or remove him permanently from their midst. So it is today, just like then. He leads us out from the four walls to the marketplace, among the commerce and trading, where people interact and all too often are isolated in loneliness. He leads us to where he can create and nurture countercultural relationships. And because it can sometimes be easier to love the people you are not connected with, he follows us home to relieve the suffering, loneliness, and pain of someone unloved amid our own, to make a difference in those right around us. He brings his love into our homes and within our relationships so that he can relieve the hunger of someone unloved. For this is where, if we are courageous enough to recognize it, we must start. It is a frightening thing to allow this countercultural Jesus into our personal relationships where we are asked to listen instead of talking. Allow Jesus to speak in the silence where we see the kindness of his eyes, feel his warmth and tenderness as he speaks with compassion to the heart, to your heart and to the heart of those you love. Jesus is countercultural. He is almost always out. He's rarely in. Does that speak to our context today? Having been prayed for by Jesus, does that inspire you? Does that inspire me to be filled with this communion and love and to so walk amongst ourselves and out amongst our community with the love from above? Amen? Let's pray. What love is this, Lord Jesus, that you would die for me, for us? What love is this that you pour forth in our hearts, that you desire that we would be marked by? Lord, we come humbly before you as hungry, soul-starved children asking that you would fill us with your love. A love that transforms lives. A love that is so powerful, that grips hearts, that draws souls to the Savior. Lord, we want to be evident in this world around us that we are your disciples, that we are your followers, not just by name or title, but by the love that you seek to fill us with. Thank you for your faithfulness, Lord. Thank you that you will see us through to the end. Would you be pleased? Would this church put a smile on your face by the way we allow your spirit to work in us and through us, to one another and to those around us, even to the unloved? We thank you. May all the glory be yours, Jesus, for it is in your powerful name we pray. Amen. Amen. All right. Thank you, Evange.
We're going to go to a time of Q&A now. So if you have any questions, anything that came up uh, while Evange was speaking, there's going to be a number on the stage, or not, not on the stage, on the screen up there. Or if you're here in person, you can raise your hand and a microphone will be brought to you. Um, so yeah, let's, uh, does anyone have any questions in the room? All right, then we'll go to phone questions. All right, so um, here's a question. Why do you think love isn't perceived as the distinguishing characteristic of Christians, according to people in younger generations leaving the church and those outside the church? Good question. Sure you don't want to take that? Uh... <laughs> <laughs> I'll be my guest. <laughs> um, the love of Jesus does not come from within us. Like I said before, it comes from above. And it is to the extent that we offer up ourselves a living sacrifice and ask God to have his way with us. It is only then that the Spirit comes alive with this supernatural love that resides in us and gushes out of us. And if there's any short circuit anywhere, it is on our part, sometimes well-intentioned, sometimes needing to come around and to trust uh, as we live and move uh, and be in this reality of love, this communion and love that we are invited to. Awesome, thank you. Any questions in the room? All right, let's, uh... oh, there's, okay, there you go. Yeah, I need, a, I need a baseball cap here. Just <laughs> Hi, good morning. Hi, Evange. Thank you for the word. Very refreshing. Um, my question is, uh, actually I have two questions. It's Matthew 22. Uh, Jesus says, love your neighbor as yourself. Um, it's kind of weird to see you guys do that. But okay. <laughs> <laughs> I, I can stand up if that helps, but um, no, it's kind of uh, what does it look to you to say to love yourself? What does it, how does it appear to you? And if we had to generalize the love your neighbor as yourself, and if I had to say yourself is church, how are we loving the church or the person sitting next to you? Right, so two questions. One. Um, love your neighbor as yourself. So what does self-love look to you? Two, what does church love look to you? And I'm not talking again about community service, right? Do we get up and smile at the person next to us, for example, just to start with? Yeah. Yeah, great questions. Um, the first one, what, did it, what does it mean to, to love yourself? I think it's, uh, I'm reminded of the words of Paul in Romans 12, where he invites us to look at ourselves not more highly or more lowly than we actually are, but to see ourselves as God sees us. That though we are broken and in the process of being restored to the fullness of the design that he has for us, nevertheless, there is value in us because we are a child of God, a creation of God, and now we are a new creation of God. And as a result, he wants us to see ourselves with the same eyes that he sees us, precious, valuable, 
not higher or lower than how he sees us. And because of that value that we have, then that could allow us to see others with those same eyes. And when it comes to those around us, sisters and brothers in Christ, it's not, not just mere, I shouldn't say merely serving, it doesn't only end with serving one another, but it's this um, becoming one with one another as Father, Son, and Holy Spirit are one with one another. They are distinguishable, yet they are one. And that's what he desires of us, that we would be one. So that relationship would so grow in intimacy in relationship, that love travels back and forth freely, unhindered. A uh, question that just came in. If the world thinks we are judgmental, is it because uh, uh, we are judgmental because we hold up a standard of holiness that brings conviction? Hmm, that's a good question. Yeah, have fun. I would, I would, I would, uh, I would turn to Jesus. Um, if there's anyone that had the highest standard and actually lived it, unlike us, unlike you and me, it was Jesus. And did he come across as judgmental? Um, he agreed with all those that were picking up stones to stone the woman in adultery, right? And yet he said, who condemns you? He says, neither do I go and sin no more. And I think taking to heart the posture of Jesus moving around, he was, he was neck deep in sin, right? That's what he was accused of. He parties with sinners. And yet he wasn't condoning the sin, but he was seeing the value, the worth in the people. And by the way that he lived, by the way that he loved, it was disarming. And it wasn't coming across as judgmental, but it was coming across as a sincere care and concern and love for the flourishing for the thriving of this life that he is interacting with. I think when people um, come to terms or, or come to the realization that we are seeking a relational bridge, not just to download some gospel truth, but that we, we desire relationship, like Jesus desired relationship. And make no mistake, many people turned away from Jesus, right? I mean, who loved more than Jesus, and yet how many people turned away from him? I don't think it's about results. It's about trusting that as we swim in this reality, this context of communion and love with Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, he comes with us through the Spirit and allows us to interact and relate with people in a way that is, is honest, is authentic, is real, is loving at the end of the day. Oh, we've got a question right over here. Thank you for the sermon. And I imagine God the Father is holy, uh, his spirit, and the Holy Spirit. When we see in the heaven three persons or one person? Mm. Thank you. Yes. <laughs> now we're getting into the hypostatic union, the, uh, <laughs> the trivial stuff of, uh, <laughs> of the scriptures. Um, yeah. Scholars much more advanced than me uh, and theologians down through the centuries have 
conversed and dialogued and, uh, and argued and debated back and forth what that reality is. is. And I think um, even in the scriptures, um, you see people uh, grappling for vocabulary to describe something that really is out of this world. It's, uh, I think our, our language is too finite to accurately describe how they are indeed three dis distinguishable persons, and yet they are one God. Not three gods, one God. So, um, yeah, I, I can't wait to meet him face to face. That's one of the big ones I'm going to try to understand.